Welcome to Balance of Power on 1039-1450-WKXL-NHTalkRadio.com. Also, wherever you get your podcasts, I'm Ken Kale, joined by our panel, two-time U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson, and columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston. Well, all of Washington is abuzz about the upcoming infrastructure bill set to be released this week by the Biden administration. Word is that it will include $4 trillion in spending offset by $3 trillion in taxes from rolling back the Trump tax cuts on the wealthy. Are Democrats overdoing it on this amount of spending and investment, given signs that the economy is turning around, Alicia? I think $4 trillion is a lot of money. And I think it is rational to oppose something we haven't seen. You know, I don't know what this $4 trillion is going to. I'm a supporter of infrastructure. I think we, we need it. It's, it's part of how our country functions economically with trade and everything else. But that's a big chunk of money. And I, I am concerned that embedded in it is going to be a lot of the fluff that is in the Green New Deal that isn't best for the economy. And I think right now, as we are coming out of this dark hole of the last year, we need to be very careful what we're spending money on so that we don't do more damage to the economy and we instead grow it. And so, I mean, I'm a little on the sideline because I don't know what's in it, but it sounds to me like $4 trillion all at once is probably a big step to take. We have for the past 40 or 50 years seen in the American economy a huge shift uh, in wealth to the very top and a shift of wealth to the very top, which has created um, a huge wealth gap in this country. I mean, for example, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk own more wealth than uh, the bottom 40% of all Americans. Um, that's just an example of the, of the in income and wealth inequity that is stifling real growth uh, and preventing us from moving forward into the future with a rising tide that lifts all boats. Uh, to that extent, the kinds of investments, some of which are said to be contained in the second part of this plan, uh, are important investments that actually create opportunity and create jobs. Standard & Poor's uh, suggests uh, that uh, the Biden plan will create approximately 2.3 million jobs by 2024. Uh, over and above the issues of the wealth and inequality gap and the, the opportunity gap, uh, uh, because obviously a country just cannot survive and thrive as a country of the very rich and the very poor, which is where we've become. Here we are after a, a, a pandemic-caused recession, and to the extent that the economy has begun to turn around, uh, that would take an awfully long time to accomplish uh, absent some further help, because what's gone on so far is relief for COVID, some uh, relief for those who are in debt because of COVID. And recent news articles have cited example after example of folks 
who for whom the COVID relief uh, plan has meant the ability to pay off some of their past debts, but leaving them still in a hole. So this is actually a package which would set the stage for taking this country into the future and address, frankly, the primary uh, issue um, which there seems to have been bipartisan support for, which is infrastructure, uh, because our failing physical infrastructure, roads, bridges, rail lines, water, sewer, um, need help. Uh, we have to become a green economy. Uh, the idea that the Green New Deal is not in a, a jobs plan, it's not an economy booster, is ridiculous uh, because a Green New Deal means new green jobs. We have to make this energy transition. So infrastructure means creating the infrastructure of the 21st century. The power grid, money to expand broadband access, clean energy, energy efficiency pro programs. And as I said, the second part of the plan is about jobs, health care, child care, um, making it possible to create opportunity for, for those who need it. Now, Joe Biden, or as Saturday Night Live calls him, Joe Biden, isn't merely uh, saying we're going to spend $4 million, $4 trillion. I mean, even standalone, it would be an investment, but he's actually figured out a pay for. And the pay for isn't so complicated. It's reversing a lot of what Donald Trump gave away to the very wealthy by asking those, the, as uh, my friend Bernie Sanders would say, the millionaires and the billionaires, to pay a little bit more of their fair share, to deal with the fact that there are giant corporations who are not paying a single penny in taxes by raising the corporate tax rate and encouraging domestic manufacturing. So on the whole, this is an extraordinarily responsible and balanced proposal because the $1 trillion uh, investment that is not paid for will pay for itself in jobs and opportunity. Matt, weigh in on this. I'm going to be looking to see how traditional Republican-leaning groups, especially business groups, react when, as Alicia says, we haven't seen the details, right? But when this when this package does emerge this week, I want to see what the U.S. Chamber of Commerce says. They have been trending toward more of middle ground position. They have been embracing some priorities of the Democratic Party. But I agree that this is ultimately about business competitiveness. And so always, when it comes down to uh, economic issues like this that are, you know, pretty highfalutin. Um, they're, they're, they involve complex economic concepts. Voters should not be expected to really want to get down into the nitty gritty of, you know, inflation versus taxes versus long term. If this comes down to essentially, we we want to create jobs and make businesses competitive. I want to see how these groups position themselves. There is a case to be made that I suspect that large businesses and small businesses in America will get behind. It's not just that we're 13th in the world on the quality of our infrastructure. It's that there are always anecdotes flying around in political circles. They come up every campaign. Alicia, I'm sure you've run into these before in the midst of you know your running campaigns. Where you know the old one that I used to deal with is. 
it was faster. If you wanted, if you're a small business in New Hampshire, you wanted to ship your goods to a buyer in Ohio, it's faster for that buyer in Ohio to get them from China because of a lack of infrastructure domestically in the US. So if this is about small business competitiveness, let's see how the small business groups come down on it. Let's see how uh, the large companies and the US Chamber of Commerce come down on it. I suspect that they're going to embrace it. And that's gonna create a very interesting problem challenge for the Republican Party that may be split a little bit between its traditional pro-business interests and its traditional anti-tax under <laughs> all circumstances interests. Uh, why politically are we so stuck on uh, issues like this? Uh, this is something that uh, both parties say is important, that Donald Trump was pushing for years and where base voters from uh, both parties agree. This morning uh, in the New York Times, little, uh, liberal economist uh, Paul Krugman uh, asked why Republicans can't be economic populists and support things like the infrastructure initiative and instead seem uh, stuck in economic theories that mostly involve cutting taxes and uh, on the rich and, and getting rid of regulations, policies that are the opposite of populist. He really didn't have a good answer to his own question. Do you, Paul Hodes? We have been stuck in uh, political tribalism now for a long time. And the political tribalism requires that if, uh, if somebody with a D next to their name makes a proposal, then somebody with R is going to squeal about it and uh, oppose it. Um, the, the, the actual policies are not as important in political tribalism as the fight. Um, and by the way, the fight makes for decent television, but now that Trump have got, is gone, of course, that, 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 that's how it, the fights seem somewhat uh, petty. I mean, one would think that in light of the pandemic we've suffered, in light of the craziness we saw on January 6th, there would be some sense of uh, folks coming together. One of the interesting things to me is that um, the, the venom of the right that was so evident against Obama uh, seems to be quite muted in comparison with the way the right is going after Joe Biden. Um, it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon. I wonder if it has to do with the fact that Joe Biden is a white guy who was in the Senate and uh, Obama was a black man who had been uh, elected president. So there, there has been, I'd, I'd say the venom is muted. The opposition seems to be firm on the right to any idea uh, that Democrats have. Now, in fairness, that clearly the Democratic proposal, Joe Biden's proposal for uh, infrastructure investment and tax hikes is exactly what Republicans um, like to message. They'll say big spending. They, they won't talk about investment. Big spending, tax and spend, it's, it, it really does play into the kind of traditional silliness that so much of politics uh, is about. Why it's happened this way, I don't know, because it, it makes good conflict and Republicans could raise money, could raise money off it. Um, certainly, 
uh, nobody can say that the four years of the Trump administration in which the wealthy got a huge tax cut, the wealth gap increased, opportunity decreased, then incompetence, inattention, uh, and stupidity uh, led us to uh, many more deaths from the coronavirus than we should have had. Uh, it left the country in uh, reeling. I mean, it's hard to think of four years that left us in a in a worse state than the four years of Trump. Um, but you know, there are glimmers of hope. The glimmer of hope is that um, there's not quite as much venom. There's not quite as much uh, heat in the Republican opposition. It seems sort of uh, firm, but um, uh, but 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 not mean. For example, Mitch McConnell, adamant that his party uh, is not going to support any new taxes. I, I don't think there's going to be any enthusiasm on our side for a tax increase. Now, that's about as hot as Mitch McConnell has gotten with Biden. It's not very hot. Your thoughts, Alicia? Well, let me first start by saying I think it's both heated and venomous to accuse Republicans of being racist because they're not mean enough to the Democratic president. Uh, I, I thought you might pick up on that. Yeah. So let's start with why are people not as mean to Joe Biden as they were to Barack Obama? Because it has nothing to do with race. It also has nothing to do with politics. Uh, we like Joe Biden. Even we Republicans, many of us want to have a beer with the guy. I want to have him over and make him some homemade chowder. I think he'd be polite and we'd enjoy it. I don't like his politics. I don't like how liberal he's going, but I can't insult the man because I believe he is a statesman that has been part of our culture for decades. Barack Obama, we didn't know. He became president. We focused on his policies and I didn't like him because of it. I hated Obamacare. I still do. But there was and there is a personal relationship people have with Biden where we're very easy to take on his policies we disagree with. However, I'm not going to insult this older gentleman who I have thought of that way for decades. And it's got nothing to do with the color of his skin. On to the question you originally asked. Paul was right at the top. It's tribalism. Um, the same reason Republicans are opposing this bill that they haven't seen is the reason Democrats are supporting this bill that they haven't seen because government is politics and politics is partisan. And that's all it is right now. If a Republican comes up with something, the Democrats are gonna hate it. If a Democrat comes up with something, the Republicans are gonna hate it. They are governing all of them, the whole lot of them, are governing to their political party and the donor base that comes with that as opposed to what is right and just for the people of this country. I don't disagree with anything that Paul and Alicia have said, but I do think it still begs the question of why. Of, of course, there is political tribalism and there is a knee-jerk response to oppose anything put forward from the other party. But I do still think that that there's this question of, well, why does that make sense? Why is the Republican Party, to Paul Krugman's question, still stuck on a political orthodoxy of 30 or 40 years ago that... Donald Trump himself started to pave away from. And it would seem that it would make sense for today's Republican Party to go to this super economic populist place, right? This is this is where some forward-looking Republican leaders have urged the party to go. So why? Why still stuck on the knee-jerk? I would argue that there are two reasons. One is that Republicans were the first to discover that in modern po politics, 
this was circa 1994 and the Gingrich revolution, that there is no political incentive to accommodation or compromise. As Alicia was just name checking our president and how likable he is, you know, one of his verbal takes is to say, this, they're not bad people. I like them. I just disagree. Well, I'm not saying that Republicans are bad people. I'm saying that they're cleverer in having figured out earlier than Democrats that there is no longer an upside to accommodating, to trying to find middle ground and compromising. There's an old piece of political wisdom that doing favors in politics is never worth it because for each favor you do, you generate nine people who are ticked off at you and one person who's ungrateful. Well, that's the way it is with moderate voters, right? You, you take a middle track, you, you know, Biden comes out with this infrastructure bill and Republicans say, okay, we'll try and we'll try and find some middle ground. Well, you're not going to get rewarded for that by the voters. That's just not the way it works in American politics anymore. You tick off the majority of voters and the ones in the middle who should theoretically be glad that you're compromising and finding middle ground are ungrateful. Plus, the number of swing voters in America is estimated to be between six and nine percent. So there aren't enough of them, even if they were truly grateful, to make up for the people in your base who are now angry at you. But the other answer and the, fi the, the, the one I find personally interesting is the topic of a show that we're airing on Thursday with a professor who's looked into this. And there's a whole hidden history that he's examined that most Americans pay no attention to about how each party has developed its intellectual foundation, its, its policy platform. Why is it Republican orthodoxy to hold certain positions? Why is it Democratic orthodoxy to hold certain positions? And there's a, there's a whole background to it in the development through think tanks and policy institutions that, again, Republicans got there first. They're smarter. They, they got there first in the 1960s and 70s, and that has continued to spiral through to this day. So I'll commend that to our listeners for the rest of the answer on this. But check that out, because I do think that has a lot to do with why Republicans aren't able to break away from 1970s economic and political thinking, an update to the 2020s. The Biden administration has been promoting the concept of a vaccine passport. And like most things, the concept has become political and partisan. Uh, what are your thoughts, uh, Alicia? I think I kind of disagree with both sides of the very divisive argument on this. In part, I think it is absolutely foolish for the Biden administration and the Cuomo administration in New York, where a lot of this got its uptick, to be promoting this as a passport. Because automatically, people hear the word passport and you think government document. And that is a terrible optic to be thinking there will be a government document we have to carry around to prove we've had a vaccine. And I would be in 100% opposition of that. However, that's not what it is. And therefore, I don't know why they're making such a misstep to call it a passport. What this is, is working with the private sector and promoting a private sector technology that for private businesses that want to make sure their customers have the vaccine before they're allowed to go into their private business, concert venue, restaurant, retail shop, they want the choice to say whether or not their customers have to have the vaccine. Now, I think that's a little extreme, but I'm a free market capitalist. If I'm a restaurant in Manhattan and I only want vaccinated customers and I want, and the customers are willing to be part voluntarily of a 
of a program to show me that they're vaccinated so they can come into my lovely restaurant, then that is my right, both as the business owner and as the customer to choose not to participate in such a program. That's the free market. I'm for it. I think the knee-jerk reaction is all the administration's fault, both in New York and the Biden administration, for labeling it something that screams uh, government overstep and control. A new, a new idea always provokes fear uh, and misunderstanding. The fears here are, are broad. Um, one is around privacy and whether uh, it's appropriate to collect data of this kind. It's health data. Um, and, and people are afraid about the government uh, collecting their health data uh, about vaccines um, and, and, and can't safeguard the in information. Another fear is that uh, there are folks who can't get the vaccine for one reason or another, uh, whether it's lack of access or uh, inability, um, and that if the certificates or the proof that you're vaccinated is supposed to be resident on your smartphone, well, you know, one in five people don't have smartphones. And so uh, it, uh, there's a worry about technology and, and how that will disadvantage um, people who don't or can't have smartphones um, and who don't or can't get the vaccine. So those are two broad fears. And then there's the whole idea uh, of the uh, show us your papers um, kind of society. Uh, the um, you know I mean if uh, it's the it, it it's it, we we've never been a country as far as I know where you're required to to present some certificate or passport to participate except well there's driver's licenses that shows that you've been certified and you can drive. Um, you get a sticker when you voted, you get a sticker when you've gotten your vaccine. Um, so people are displaying those stickers. Um, so there's just general, if there's general unease, there's disarray around the, the globe about this. The Europeans are trying it with a, some kind of certificate. Maybe certificate is a better word. It's less less onerous than passport. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure the semantics really carry that much weight. Um, Americans don't want to, don't, don't like the idea, I think, of having to show me your papers. Um, I, I, and on the other hand, um, uh, given the way we know that the coronavirus spreads, we're seeing a surge right now, it's, it's a good idea to know, especially if things are easing up and restrictions are easing up and people can go back into restaurants and other places where they're going to be in close proximity. Seems to be a pretty good idea to know who you're sitting next to. And um, it's actually uh, viable as a, as a public health measure to be able to say, well, here, you know, the, these people have been vaccinated. Uh, I can I can sit in a restaurant. It, it leads to some peace of mind. So I'm not overly upset about the whole thing. But then again, I've been vaccinated, 
And I don't mind telling people, hey, I've been vaccinated. Um, and, you know, now that I'm, I, we had dinner the other night with a group of six vaccinated people. And um, uh, on the one hand, when they told their friends, so when they said, hey, we've been vaccinated, I believe them. <laughs> and I did not say, show me your papers. <laughs> Matt, your thoughts on the vaccine passport? Well, first of all, Paul, bully for you and for all the people out there who have managed to get vaccines. I am really thrilled and jealous. Um, yeah, look, I think everything that Alicia said is not only spot on, but also very worth listening to. I urge people, if you're listening on podcast, back up. Not that what Paul said wasn't valuable, but listen closely to what to Alicia said. Oh, Alicia, listen, you don't have you don't have to pander to me. That's okay. All right, then skip over what Paul said, but listen to what Alicia said because she is the uh, case study for who needs to be convinced as kind of like your your typical American voter and citizen and sort of the, the mindset applied. The, the situation in Israel, which is a country that successfully deployed a, a vaccine passport system, is very, very culturally different from the situation in the United States. Israel has the, the highest vaccination rate in the world. They also have universal military service. They have existing security protocols, which permeate the society. So people are absolutely used to doing things collectively as part of, you know, this is just the way you do things in this country and you have to. Um, the, the, obviously, culturally, the United States is very different. The crux of the problem is the sense that you don't want the government in charge of information about you. Um, at the same time, people are willing to voluntarily dance naked on TikTok for one another. Um, the, people have no problem sharing all kinds of incredible personal details about themselves through their smartphones by choice with apps run by companies that they've never heard of. So Alicia is 100% spot on. Making this a private sector led initiative, messy as it would be, is the right way to go in the United States. Well, recent weeks have seen an interesting example of how the parties try to shape media coverage and how the media responds. President Biden and the Democrats want to keep the focus on the COVID rescue bill fighting the pandemic and the economy. Republicans want to drive a media narrative about the border and cultural fights like Dr. Seuss books being discontinued. And of course, the uh, deadly shootings have also intervened uh, in the news. Has the media been covering the right things? Are they covering all of these topics fairly? Or is the media continuing to retreat into different partisan bubbles and pushing their own agenda, Alicia? Yes. <laughs> uh, all of this is partisan. I happened and, and all of the, the media, look, when we've discussed this before, it's not just how the media reports in a story, it's what they choose to report. It could be in a completely unbiased story, but the fact that it was chosen to be spotlighted versus something else is part of the latent bias of the American media system, actually probably the world media system. I think all of it matters. I think cultural fights are just as important as policy fights because it all matters. I think um, I am someone, I hate the term cancel culture because I think it's trite, but I think there is too much um, of this ignoring history for the sake of sensitivities. I think it's dangerous. I don't think it's a small deal. I don't think it's a matter of, oh, we're not gonna publish six Dr. Seuss books. I think we're talking about things like 
when you say you can't teach, um, you know, to kill a mockingbird in a school anymore because it's got bad words in it. It is vital to know how people spoke in a different era. That is history. That that shows how we have evolved and changed. And that is what we learn from. So I think that's important and should not be ignored. I think all these policy discussions are equally important. And I think our lawmakers should be able to do two things at once or eight things at once. And the American people should have an attention span to do it too. Uh, I think too many sides of the media are focusing just on uh, mocking the other side or promoting their own side. And I couldn't tell you today where I can get an unbiased news source, if only by the stories they choose to cover. The media just has just not been able to figure out what the media wants to mediate now that Donald Trump is gone. We're left in the vast wasteland of ordinary news. And who cares, really? I mean, are any of us watching MSNBC or hating Wolf Blitzer with the same attention that we did when Donald Trump was gallivanting around our, our tubes? Hardly. I mean, nobody's watching anymore. What are they listening to? Only a few nerds like Matt Robeson and me and Alicia are even thinking about this at all. The media, I mean, it's such, the media is so passe. I mean, it's like, okay, it's just ordinary politics. So who really cares? Where's the scandal? The biggest thing we can figure out is Biden and his dog. Okay, now there's a story of the kind of political moment that we really, really are attracted to. Biden and his dog, the aging German shepherd, takes to the White House, and we see pictures of the dog now uh, on the White House lawn. That is really good political coverage, because what have we got? There's nothing left. I think the media is done. Matt, <laughs> is the media done? Well, Paul's not wrong. We talked last week about the fact that CNN has lost 45% of its viewers in the last five weeks and visitors to the Washington Post are down 25%, uh, New York Times down 17%. I mean, Paul's right. There is definitely a little bit of uh, attention deficit disorder going on here um, without a bright, shiny, flaming object like Donald Trump to capture our attention. But I do think that, look, there's an interesting problem going on here. If you've worked as, as an operative, or like I have, or on campaigns, uh, like Alicia and I have, your constant challenge as a communications professional is to sell. You have a product to sell to the reporters, and you're trying to get their attention. And you know the old thing is, look, if, if, if you want them to cover you, you have to make news. You have to find a news angle. What is, what is new? And the fact is that Democrats have a structural disadvantage in everything they try to promote because they are essentially constructive when it comes to the view of government. What usually the story they want to tell is great things happening from government. That is rarely a sexy and fun story for the media. On the other hand, you have a story like I mean, if, if I were on the Republican side, my job would just be a lot easier if I had to pitch a story like border crisis looms 
this reminds me of, did anyone ever read the shipping news or see the movie where it's like, they're trying to figure out how to write a headline when it's, it's a cloudy day. It's like, well, you say vicious storm threatens town. You know, it's, it's, it's not that hard to tell that story. Now, if you unpack it, it turns out that that story for, for FCC reasons, I won't say the word that I really want to say, but it's bull, okay? Everyone knows what I'm talking about. The story is bull. Researchers have looked at it. The surge of migrants at the border is less, far less than it was even two years ago. It's it's dwarfed by, this, by the surge of migrants at the border that we saw in 2014. It actually just follows seasonal patterns, plus a little bit of pent up demand for migration because of the pandemic last year. More people who wanted to come to the US didn't come because of the pandemic. We're seeing basically a seasonal, but that does that matter? No, it's a very easy story to sell if you are a Republican staffer working for Senator Ted Cruz and you want to push a narrative that there is a crisis at the border. And of course, Democrats, you know, haven't exactly helped by, it's an impossible position to be in to try and say, no, that's not really the story here. The story is over here at this very unsexy thing that people are getting checks in the mail. So yeah, I, I mean, Alicia's right. The media has jumped the shark. Um, they, they are very easily distracted onto stories that are total bull. And there's not a lot that we could do about it to fix it. That being said, I appreciate all coverage of Major the Dog. <laughs> I love that dog. You, you, so you know what's you know what's really truly ridiculous? This is like meta, so meta about this. You know, you know, in newspapers, the, the way they talk about it is that a story is a dog bites man story, which is like, you know, typical, right? Like that's what dogs do. They bite people. It's not news. And that something that's news would be a man bites dog story. Here's something that's truly unusual. So now you have a dog bites man story literally becoming a story. Why? Why? Why is this interesting? Well, there's been a lot of uh, COVID news uh, this week. Joe Biden doubled his administration's target to 200 million vaccine doses administered in his first 100 days. Dr. Deborah Burks, the former Trump administration coronavirus coordinator, said in an interview that the Trump administration bungled the COVID response and that most American deaths after the first 100,000 could have been prevented. And the director of the CDC warned of impending doom from a potential fourth surge of the virus. What did you take away from all of this COVID news, Paul Hodes. Where was Dr. Debbie when we needed her? Where was the where was the criticism, the outrage, standing up, speaking out? Where why was she sitting there in the background with pursed lips, pushing the Trump administration line when people were dying? And why wasn't she raising the alarm then? Wait, hold on. Can I can I push you on that point, Paul? Because you're you're the only person here who's actually served as an elected official in government. Let me ask you, I, this is a serious moral dilemma for you. And I, I'm really wondering how you would navigate it because you you nearly took a position in the administration after you were in Congress. So here's the question for you. For people like Dr. Burks and others in the Trump administration who have a choice, you can speak out, right? You can say, 
we are bungling this. There is a cover up. Things are bad. And then what's going to happen next? You're going to get fired and someone far less competent than you, who is a total toady to Donald Trump, is going to be put in your place. And it's going to they're going to do an even worse job than is being done. So how do you navigate a dilemma like that if you're in government? So I'll, I, I will stand on my bipartisan credentials. I actually was a member of the Trump administration for the four years that he was president because I was appointed by President Barack Obama um, and, and uh, vetted by the FBI and confirmed by the United States Senate to the critically important post of National Counselor on the Arts. And during my tenure in the administration, uh, first Donald Trump put in a, a minder at the National Endowment of the Arts. Um, uh, and that minder uh, eventually became the chair when the uh, previous uh, chair of the National Endowment left. Um, she had been appointed by a Democrat and the minder became chair. So the way I discharged my moral dilemma at that point was, um, uh, was to give serious thought to whether or not I ought to resign. Uh, but I, at the time, I decided that I could do a better job as a mole on the inside, uh, making sure that arts policy was protected against the administration's faults and flaws um, than I could uh, resigning in protest. In my case, nobody would have noticed. I never went on television as a national counselor on the arts to call out Donald Trump's arts policy because nobody was listening. Um, I was never, it was just never an issue. So the dilemma, and frankly, there were no resignations from the National Council, although a number of people on it had been appointed by Democrats and were loath to, you know, here we were as the board of directors of an agency, which President Trump zeroed out every year of his budget, but there were no resignations because we thought it more important to uh, maintain um, uh, uh, the arts agency and do what we could on arts policy from the inside. I, it, it's always difficult to, to in, a morally, uh, in a moral dilemma scenario to say what somebody should or should not have done. In the case of COVID-19, where Dr. Burks uh, clearly had strong opinions, which she now expresses about it, and where hundreds of thousands of lives were at stake, you have the example of Dr. Fauci, who managed uh, during the time he was a member of that administration or working with that administration to speak out and speak up to some degree. That we all noticed the stark contrast between what Dr. the way Dr. Burks handled it and Dr. Fauci handled it. And that is one of the reasons it's left me um, casting an aspersion on the way she conducted herself during the administration. I think that there were ways that she could have been much more productive and constructive uh, while even if she stayed on the job uh, in, in trying to 
deal with the lies and and ignorance that was coming out of the Trump administration, and she utterly failed. Fauci didn't utterly fail. He had made he made clear in a diplomatic way how he felt. So I I'm my 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 the hairs on the back of my moral neck are up when it comes to Burks, but not not with Fauci. And I'm not saying it's easy, but I but that's where I am on it. Your thoughts, Alicia? I agree with Congressman Hodes completely, and I'll take it a step far- farther. I think Dr. Burks is a damn coward. If she knew way back then that there were things that could be taken place that could prevent deaths, even if they didn't get implemented, if she had spoken out and made the public aware and let the chips fall where they may, if she gets fired, at least her word can be out. She'd have an open voice. She could continue to beat that drum. And we all know the media would have carried it. If she said, Donald Trump is failing, here's what needs to be done. Here's what he's not doing. Here's what he's not telling you. She could have saved lives. The idea that she stayed there to be a mole, she wasn't effective. 400,000 more people died than should have, according to her. And she wants to say, well, I thought about quitting a whole lot of times. Well, that's not good enough. Fauci came out and did what he could with a balance and let us be informed in a way that President Trump, I don't think, was adequately doing. Dr. Burke stayed silent until she's out of the administration and wants to do a tour about some moral struggle she had while 400 plus thousand more people died. As far as I'm concerned, she's got as much blood on her hands as anybody else. And I find it infuriating. What frequently happens in these situations after an administration leaves office is a little bit like the classic prisoner's dilemma scenario. I'm sure people have heard of it. The cops arrest you and your accomplice and you're both put in separate rooms and you're both offered a deal if you're the first person to rat the other one out. The same thing happens in the media with former members of an administration when something bad has happened. And that's what you're starting to see now with not just Dr. Burks, but also Alex Azar, the former head of uh, health and human services and other Trump administration officials who see a half million American plus death toll and a lot of blame to go around. And there's a little bit of a rush to to get your story out there that it was really everyone else who should be under the bus. So I agree with you, Alicia. I think that it's worth taking her testimony here uh, with a grain of salt. That said, I also think that it doesn't excuse the overall narrative here, which is we have it well confirmed from dozens and dozens of inside sources and from data and from all kinds of information that there were serious, profound mistakes, missteps, intentional cover-ups that made the situation far worse and that got Americans killed. And there does need to be some accountability for that. So even if there is this kind of rush to rat one another out first and deepest, um, that the, the upshot of that whole process is still information that we all deserve to have because there should be accountability for that. The only other thing I'll say, Ken, since your original question was about what do we make of all this COVID news is that I once again, since we're on the radio, just want to implore people on behalf of this panel, as Mitch McConnell himself said this week, 
please get vaccinated. And please, please, as the CDC director said, she feels this sense of impending doom. And most of it is because of an uptick in travel and an uptick in behavior that people should know better about at this point. I am just appealing to our fellow citizens here, hold out just a couple months longer, please. I'm begging you for the health of those of us who aren't vaccinated and our kids and everyone else who's vulnerable in our society, please. And on that good advice, we'll have to wrap it up for this edition of Balance of Power. For Elizabeth Preston, Paul Hodes, and Matt Robeson, I'm Ken Kale. See you next time.